Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis XIV, and I'm so glad to have you guys back for another episode. Before we get into everything today, just some housekeeping. First off, thank you so, so much to all of the amazing Pop Pantheon listeners that came out to Gorgeous Gorgeous last weekend. It was incredible to meet a whole fucking bunch of you. It was so cool. I loved it. Thank you for coming up to me. Thanks for saying hi. I hope to see you guys back at future ones. And if you didn't get to make it out this time, the next date will be coming for September very, very soon. I want to go back to something we were doing before the Beyonce episodes and just quickly read off a couple of my favorite recent reviews on Apple Podcasts. The first is from Nikolai89, who says, love this podcast. You had me at Diana Ross. You sold me at having two Diana Ross episodes. Would love to see Barbara Streisand, her influence on pop standards and really leading the way for the LGBTQ plus icons. Agree. I want to do that one too. Whitney and her bridge of pop and R&B. Dolly Parton for bridging the link between country and pop and releasing Here You Come Again, the first true country pop hit. Love these suggestions. Definitely want to get to all of these people. Another from T.S. Reed. Doc T22, who said, Brandy episode, question mark. Love this podcast. Find myself returning to it, looking for new episodes to dive into once I finish listening. Can we please have a Brandy episode? I'm a massive Taylor, Brittany, and Janet fan. Ditto, which I know their episodes will be coming in due time, but please give us Brandy and put some respect on Aphrodisiac and Full Moon. Yes. Thank you, guys. So thank you for that. And then finally, a double review from somebody that amended their review. This is MileyFan3064, ironically enough, given this episode, who first gave us five stars and said, Redo. Redo Gaga. She needs multi-part. Love you much. Then wrote five days later, one star. Redo Gaga. She needs multi-part. This guy just worships Beyonce cringe. Okay. So... Anyway, thank you everybody that's been reviewing the show. It really helps us in the rankings, especially on Apple Podcasts, but wherever you listen to podcasts. So please continue to rate and review Pop Pantheon wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram and me at DJ XIV on both Instagram and Twitter. Hop in our Discord, which now features channels. The people have asked for channels and we have delivered channels. There's a few different fun chat rooms in there. One's just a group chat. One's about new music and ones for podcast specific conversations plus there's obviously the general channel i like to pop in there periodically it's super great in there i really highly recommend if you need a place to vent your pop opinions or to talk to other people that are equally obsessed with all this shit as you this is the place to go i gotta tell you i wish i had had this myself before i started it so last few things check out the spotify playlist for this and every episode in the show notes oh and also the links for the Discord, etc., will also be in the show notes and will also be in the bios of my social media accounts. And finally, we are putting together a listener mailbag episode. Yay! If you have any questions about Pop Pantheon, about pop in general, things you want me to talk about, arguments about tier placements, arguments about things I've said on the show, whatever it is, send them to us. We're actually encouraging voice notes this time. We want to play people's voices if possible. So we're going to give priority boarding to people that record a voice note and send it to us at poppantheonpod at gmail.com. You can send written questions if you want to. We will see how that all shakes out. But we're prioritizing voice notes. So send us your question verbally, if possible, to poppantheonpod at gmail.com. And we'll hopefully be able to answer them on a future mailbag episode. So let's get into this week, which is an episode about one of the strangest pop trajectories I can remember in my lifetime. A truly idiosyncratic career. This is Pop Pantheon, Miley Cyrus. 
Okay, Miley Cyrus. I feel like I could take this intro in two distinct directions. One would be to call Miley Cyrus a bit of a pop cautionary tale. The story of a super talented child star who has spent most of the last decade and a half with some notable exceptions, squandering goodwill with exacerbating antics, weird cultural costuming, and some truly ridiculous, ill-informed musical choices. Here is a pop star with one of the most distinct and powerful singing voices of her generation, and a performer with true stage presence, one who's had every resource at her fingertips to forge the pop trajectory of her dreams. And yet she spent it all indulgently, frequently choosing bizarre, out-of-touch attempts at self-actualization over making worthwhile art. And yet, through another lens, I find myself weirdly respecting Miley. Though her career since leaving the smash Disney Channel show Hannah Montana, which first made her a star, has been, to put it generously, filled with some really high highs and some dastardly low lows, I admire her idiosyncratic choices. Blowing the success of her biggest commercial record on a follow-up that was an um, interesting psych rock side project that she gave away for free on SoundCloud, for instance, adopting new musical styles with abandon, and being almost curiously unafraid of risks, even when many have not paid off. Whatever your view, there's no question that Miley Cyrus has blazed her own trail through the pop universe and left in her wake a legacy that's singularly wacky, sometimes thrilling, often perplexing, but certainly never boring. Net net, not a bad thing for a pop star. I came in like a Destiny Hope Cyrus was born in November 1992 in Franklin, Tennessee, to parents Tish and Billy Ray, the latter of whom was a country pop singer who would, later that same year, score the fluke smash that would define his career, Achy Breaky Heart. As a child of a bona fide one-hit wonder, Miley grew up halfway between Hollywood and the Heartland, both a child of some privilege who counted Dolly Parton as her godmother, but also not quite inner circle in a way that would guarantee her the benefits of true Tinseltown nepotism. But Miley, as she would eventually be called, along with her three siblings, were certainly part of a showbiz family, which found each kid, from a young age, pursuing stardom with fervor, often with their parents in tow. Beginning at around eight years old, Billy and Tish began taking Miley to various auditions, but she didn't have her big break till the ripe old age of 13 when she auditioned to play the best friend of the titular character in a new Disney series, Hannah Montana, the story of a quote-unquote normal teen girl who lives a double life as a pop star. Instead of the friend, Miley was cast in the lead role and had the entire show rewritten around her, including a part for Billy Ray as Hannah's father. The show became a blockbuster sensation, one of Disney's most successful ever, and centered Miley's spunky, effervescent charm and, on a series of massively successful soundtrack albums, her dynamic, raspy, country-twang-inflected singing voice. The show ran for four seasons, from 2006 to 2011, and it became both the gift and the curse of Miley's career. She was a superstar amongst a passionate tween fanbase, but when the time inevitably came for her to transition from kid idol to legit adult pop star, it was rocky. Miley had crossover radio hits during her time on the show. She released her debut album as herself, but still under the Disney umbrella, Breakout, in 2008, a benign pop rock record that, while quite commercially successful and producing the top 10 hit Seven Things, didn't stray far from the wholesome teen vibes of Hannah. She also reached number four on the singles chart with 2009's The Climb, a country rock ballad from the Hannah Montana The Movie soundtrack. 
But Miley really scored her first true establishing hit as a pop figure outside of Hannah later that year on the bizarre, bouncy, country rap pop song, Party in the USA. A curio about a girl who moves from Nashville to LA to pursue her show business dreams and dances the songs by Britney and Jay-Z in order to ease the homesick blues. The track hit number two on the Billboard Hot 100 in summer 2009 and truly began Miley's odd, arduous journey to mainstream superstars. Following Party in the USA, the next four years of Miley's career were defined by a series of attempts to break free of the gilded Hannah Montana prison once and for all and present herself as an adult pop icon worthy of grown-up fans. Her first attempt, 2010's Can't Be Tamed, a craven, soulless swing at C-list Britney and Gaga dance pop, and her last album under Disney's stewardship was an abject failure. While the title track hit number eight on the Hot 100, none of the other singles took off, and Miley's prefab, sexy, combative presentation was laughed off or worse nearly ignored by the broader pop consuming community. Following Tamed, she took a few years off to regroup and focus on acting before re-emerging in 2013 as what can only be described as another entity entirely. Miley 2.0 had turned her auburn locks to a blonde, short, platinum swoop. She was also a hip-hop-obsessed, weed-smoking party animal who liked to cavort publicly in her underwear and proudly flaunted a newly minted, very-in-your-face, brat-forward, I-don't-give-a-fuck attitude. She'd had the musical overhaul to match, too. In fact, Miley's entire career changed with the release of her first single and video from her next album, 2013's Bangers, the Mike Will Made It produced We Can't Stop. A strange, languorous, dissonant-sounding, and yet weirdly uplifting piano ballad turned trap anthem, celebrating debauchery, molly, and general quote-unquote turnt-upness. This record completely repositioned the former clean-cut Disney kid as the head party bitch in charge of a generation of proudly disaffected degenerates. The hyper-stylized Diane Martell-directed music video found her rolling around a house party in her underwear, interspersed with bizarre, trippy visuals like large, plushy teddy bears and chopped off fingers oozing pink goo. Meanwhile, a garish, twerk-filled performance of the song alongside Robin Thicke at the 2013 MTV VMAs instantly went down as one of the most legendary train wrecks of the show's history. Indeed, We Can't Stop became both a cultural sensation, peaking at number two, and also a hot rod for controversy, with both Miley's risque invocations of drug culture and salacious new guys, as well as her flagrant appropriation of hip-hop tropes and cadences sparking a bajillion think pieces. And it achieved in three minutes what the entire Can't Be Tamed album cycle could not, fully cleaving Miley from Hannah once and for all and making her, nearly eight years from when she first became a Disney star, the biggest and most genuinely controversial pop star of the moment. Miley released Bangers in the fall of 2013 amidst a swirl of fascination, excitement, and disgust. The record itself mostly warranted all of this, filled with an innovative, sometimes cringeworthy, and quite prescient hybrid of trap, country, and pop. Some of the music lived up to the claims of Miley's egregious cultural costuming, utilizing cumbrous white girl rapping to convey edginess in a way that was sometimes awkward to listen to. But a lot of it, including the second single and her first number one hit, Wrecking Ball, displayed some of her best vocals and most vulnerable songwriting 
to date, chronicling the ups and downs of her relationship with actor Liam Hemsworth with surprising skill, pathos, and depth. Bangers went on to be certified triple platinum by the RIAA, still her most successful project commercially, and put Miley on Pop's A-list. However, this fickle iconoclast couldn't hold on to her bangers guys, however good it ultimately was for her bottom line for long. She followed it up in 2015 with an absurd, punishingly unruly 95-minute Wayne Coyne-produced psychedelic rock slog, which she gave away for free on SoundCloud, Miley Cyrus and Her Dead Pets, an album that presented Miley as a wide-eyed Occidental freshman who just discovered acid philosophy and the flaming lips. Dead Pets landed with a resounding thud, slammed by critics as sophomoric and self-indulgent and disappearing from public consciousness almost as soon as it arrived. Miley once again rebooted and returned in 2017 with, you guessed it, yet another image overhaul. This time as a middle-of-the-road Casey Musgraves-like country rocker on her next record, Younger Now. While it managed to produce the top 10 hit Malibu, it too was a commercial underperformer, quickly falling off the charts and failing to produce another successful single. More recently, following her international hit with Mark Ronson, the Jolene ripping Nothing Breaks Like a Heart, Miley has seemed to settle into a vibe that suits her gritty dynamo voice, irreverent attitude, and penchant for launching covers that are more resonant than her own music. She spent much of her well-received 2020 album Plastic Hearts cosplaying as a 70s and 80s style rock goddess, including on the minor hit The Edge of 17 homage Midnight Sky, and the good notices from her fans and critics, as well as genuinely virtuosic live performances that have defined this era, seem to have put her music career on the most solid ground it's been in nearly a decade. Miley Cyrus has sold over 32 million singles and 10 million albums in the U.S. alone. She's had three number one albums, one number one single, and nine top tens. Bangers is often cited as having been influential on the sound of pop music in the mid to late 2010s, helping steer broader pop trends away from dance pop and towards trap and hip hop. She made the Time 100 list in both 2008 and 2014, and she's been cited for her activism on behalf of the LGBTQ plus and unhoused communities, founding the successful Happy Hippie Foundation in late 2014. Here with me on the show to discuss the curious career of one Miss Miley Cyrus is music critic Shad D'Souza. Okay, so I am here with music critic Shad D'Souza. Shad, welcome to Pop Pantheon. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to have you. I have been reading your work across the great internet for the past couple years. I think you're such a smart critic, and I'm extraordinarily excited to have you on the show to talk about the complicated career and legacy of Miley Cyrus, one of our most befuddling and I don't know what the right word for it is, but maybe controversial pop stars in recent times. Yeah, definitely someone forging her own path <laughs> for better and for worse, I think. Is that a read? Um, No, like, y- yeah, I think everything I say about Miley will be a read, but like all with love, you know? Yeah, I mean, I have had this notion in my head about Miley for a long time, but definitely felt it solidify as I was going back through her work preparing for this. Just thinking about, has there ever been a pop star who has seemed so A-listy and so vital for so long with so little actual good music or hit music (laughs) to show for it? 
You know what I mean? Yeah. She almost set a kind of blueprint for all these quote-unquote pop stars you have today who are just more famous for being people and tabloid celebrities than they are for their actual music. It's what's going to make placing her in the Pantheon extremely complicated because I'm like, yes. she could go in any of these tiers. I kind of agree with you. And it's going to be one of those things where we have to like throw the rules out the window and just like use our instincts to figure it out because it's this bizarre thing where she definitely still to this day feels like she is kind of like an A-listy pop star. And yet when you really go back through this music, I mean, she has made a lot of, let's call it peculiar choices throughout her career. Not all of them have paid off. In fact, I would say the majority of them haven't. And yet the thing that makes this extra intriguing, everything that we're talking about, is that she's kind of a musical virtuoso more so than many of her peers who have released a lot more solid bodies of work like I was thinking about Selena Gomez like in contrast to Miley where I'm like okay Miley is so preternaturally talented as a vocalist she's a great talent and Selena Gomez I would say is not a traditional music talent and yet Selena Gomez has like found a niche where she's like got a sound she's made a lot of interesting decent music over her career whereas like Miley who is much more naturally talented than Selena like has really struggled to figure out like how to harness and utilize what she's working with into like effective pop music over and over again it seems yeah she's in this very interesting middle ground where it's like she has kind of like the highest highs and the lowest lows mm. i think some of her music is so incredible and yes. i will really ride for a lot of the music that people hate as we will get into i'm sure i'm but sure like yes it's very fearless her career in a way that is almost to her detriment i think right. she could have made <laughs> an extremely successful extremely safe record although again we'll get into it we'll get into younger now but um yeah i was gonna yeah. say she has done that too <laughs> yeah exactly i think she's at her best when everything's going wrong and like that's what i love about her when she's swinging big and it is kind of awkward feeling that's when she's sort of at her best on some level we're obviously going to spend quite a chunk of this discussion on bangers which is like her one true moment where her pop stardom felt like it was on the level with her talent even though it was like loaded with so much controversy and we'll get into all of that but there's like an awkwardness to her guys that she's putting on there as like a white girl rapping whatever you want to peg that persona as but somehow like I think to your point it's like when she's swinging big and trying something out there and like pushing it that far she's the most successful I think when she tries to reel it in on any level she's kind of missing what makes her interesting yeah absolutely I think inherently she's kind of a freak and kind of a misfit <laughs> and so yeah. when she's like okay I'm gonna fit in it just is so wrong you know right and then the flip side of it all is that you have to admire the bravery as you were pointing out of her extremely odd choices throughout her career like she really has as you said for better and worse blazed her own path that is kind of singular to her and isn't necessarily always been in her commercial interests so I really do even though like I don't love a lot of the music she's put out I love her for that and that has endeared her to me despite that some of this music, as I went back through it, was just like, wow, I wish 
that it was better. Even though there is great shit in the mix too. Yeah. And we're going to talk about that. I love a lot of it too, but a lot of it I'm like, wow. Okay. I feel like we're kind of opposite on that. I think some of her music is so sublime and so good. And yet yeah. I cannot get down with her as kind of like, she's so almost needy in a way mm. that is very cringe to me. And she needs people to like her and to approve of her. And I'm like, you don't need to do that because obviously, even though all of your music is like totally insane, sometimes like yeah. when it works, it's just so good that I think she could let the art speak for itself and instead she chooses never to do that. I see what you're saying, but if she really wanted people to approve of her, would that type of artist follow up bangers with this like 95 minute Wayne Coyne air sats flaming lips but by a privileged witch bright girl in college vibe album? But it's about people approving of her mm. and her individuality and I see. who she sees herself as being, you know, right. it's less about making hits than like making the world accept Miley Cyrus for who she is. I got you. Now that you're framing it that way, I really do see what you're saying. And the other thing that I sort of picked up from this, which I think is a good jumping off point for us to get into the trajectory of her career is when you go back, you kind of understand why her impulse would be for her to make constant attempts to be understood as a person when you realize how she started as this boxed in Disney girl for a long time. And she really played that part for more music than I had realized before. I started prepping for this episode. I mean, she literally released something like four albums as Hannah Montana, and then her first couple albums as herself feel like essentially two more kind of Hannah Montana adjacent sounding projects. So it kind of gave me a deeper understanding for like some of the decisions she's made in her career because she really was playing that part and being the good Disney girl for quite a period of time there. And I think at some point she like snapped and was like, I have to do something to like rectify this. And that's been kind of the engine of the last 10 years of her career or something. I mean, that would mess up anyone's <laughs> psyche. I mean, we might as well just get into it. I feel like there's so much to say on that period of her life alone. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Before we talk about Hannah Montana, can we just touch a little bit on Miley's story, like her history, how she grew up and maybe a little bit about the business family she was born into because Miley is a nepotism baby. Well, I mean, it's interesting, right? And that, that was always my perception. And then when you look at it, there's a kind of a more interesting story there, I think. Go on. So she was born in 92 to Tish Cyrus and Billy Ray Cyrus. Billy Ray, obviously famous for Achy Breaky Heart, this insane country novelty crossover that yes. brought line dancing to the mainstream. Don't tell my heart. And what's so weird about this period is that she was born right as Eggy Breaky Heart was getting huge and was having its moment. Mm. And that was Billy Ray's first and last big hit for at least 20 years. Until so, Old Town Road. <laughs> yes, exactly. But it's so interesting, right? So they named her Destiny Hope Cyrus because they were like, we've got so much hope for her. She's going to have a huge destiny. It's strange because Tish, as far as I know, was not from any kind of showbiz family. Obviously, Dolly Parton is Miley's godmother. But even in that, when Dolly talks about it, she's just kind of like, yeah, Billy Ray was just like, you have to be her godmother. And so I said yes. And... Now I love her, but there was not more to it than that. It was almost Miley who was the linchpin for this family becoming a showbiz family, you know? Mm, and they yeah. went to great efforts 
to make her a star. It was never a given that she was going to be Hannah Montana and it was never a given that she was going to be huge because it's like at this point Billy Ray was just instant has-been country crossover star. And being in that family, as we know, was not an instant way to become famous. I mean, all the Cyruses have tried their hand at being pop stars pretty much. And like, it's only really Miley and Noah who have had any lasting success. Just interesting because they uprooted their life. Like they moved to LA to get Miley on Disney. And obviously they were so, so famous. But I think without this concerted effort and without Miley having this very innate, almost irresistible star quality that I think pops up throughout her career and has saved Mm -hmm. her so many times. I think without Mm -hmm. that, there's no Cyrus family as an entity. Like, without Miley, the kids of this novelty country singer. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no question that even his one-hit wonderdom gave her some sort of leg up. I also think you're right in that one thing that is abundantly clear about Miley Cyrus is that she is born to be on stage. And that goes for both her singular vocal talent, which I'm sure we're going to get into in detail, but also she's just one of those people that when she's on stage, it's like she's home. She's a performer at heart. She knows what that's all about. And it's obvious that while the family name, I don't know how it helped her or if it didn't or whatever. I mean, we can't know the details of how that went down, but there's no question that Miley is a singular talent. It's less that Billy Ray's success was like a nepotism route for her stardom and more that they were sort of just like stage parents. I mean, naming her Destiny Cyrus seems like they're more classic stage parents maybe than just pop stars who paved the way for her success. Yeah, exactly. It's not the same necessarily as an A-lister as their child trying to get into it. Right. It's not like Blue Ivy trying to get into music. Exactly. Exactly. Obviously, they had a lot of money. Obviously, they had connections and resources, but I still think you don't make someone as famous as Miley. She had something, definitely, undeniably. Oh, for sure. So how does she end up getting cast on Hannah Montana? Yeah, so Tish, her mom, was in this momager role, and then through Dolly, they got introduced to this manager of child stars, and it was through him that they found out about Hannah Montana, and she initially auditioned to be the best friend. Lily, I think her name is in the show, but then they were like, oh, maybe you should audition for the lead, and then they were kind of like, oh, you seem too young to be the lead. And then they were like, actually, you should do this. I think in part because of her talent as an actress and a singer. And also it's weird how well she suits the role. Obviously it was written around her, but it is also this weird narrativization of her own life. Like Billy Ray plays himself in the show. That show did as much for him as it did for her in a weird way. Absolutely. It's almost trippy because as the show becomes successful, so does she both as an actress and as a musician through the show's soundtrack. And just for anybody that doesn't know, the premise of Hannah Montana is about a high school girl who has a pop star alter ego named Hannah Montana, but like none of her high school friends know that she is a pop star. It's this like secret double life 
that she's living where she's like half a high school normal girl and half like a pop superstar. So there was like certain trippy moments like I was going back and rewatching some clips from the show. I mean, I never watched the show. I was too old to be a fan of Disney at this particular time, but I was going back and watching it and it was almost like a mind fuck and also a weird presager of a lot of her tropes as a pop star. There'll be like scenes of her in the studio being like, I don't want to talk about boys anymore. I want to say something more deep and meaningful with my art and my music. If we were a movie, you'd be the right guy and I'd be the best friend that you'd fall in love with and I can't sing this anymore. I mean, it's not like girls just stand around dreaming about boys all day. You okay, darling? Of course, I'm fine. It's just there's other more important things in life, like world peace and whales. Why can't we do a song about whales and not stupid boy whales, girl whales, happy, independent girl whales? Or she'll be like talking about the trials and tribulations of being famous, or she'll talk about how she has to constantly change her image so that people continue to like her. Today, who told her Hannah's career's in trouble. Now, honey, now why would Hannah's career be in trouble? I'm my pants. Because if she doesn't have a next neck, she's gonna lose her pants? Pants! 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 She thinks if she doesn't change her sound and her look, her fans will get bored. And this is when she's literally 14, 15, before she's even Miley Cyrus that we know her as pop star Miley Cyrus. So it's honestly trippy the way that the show was just like essentially, even though it was very disney and like not realistic, there was so much in there that felt weirdly parallel to the actual track she was on and who she would become in the future. I think that goes a long way to Miley wanting to forge her own path. I mean, it's like for her entire teen years, she had a crew of riders riding out her adolescence. It's wild. And it also makes sense why so many of her choices that have come as a result of her wanting to come into herself have sometimes come across as out of touch because who wouldn't be if that was the version of your childhood that you were living out? This sort of weird Disney fake real version of your life where her actual development as a human being was all in the context of this factory style representation of her existence. A lot of her later career has been defined by this sense that she isn't aware that actions have consequences and I think like <laughs> living out your teen years when you're supposed to learn that lesson you shoot a scene and then the next day it's done and the next day it's reset uh, yeah I don't want to go too deep into it I don't know Miley I don't know the nature of working on that show I'm sure it was really really hard but I think it might explain some of the way she conducted herself later on so you watched the show. How would you describe Miley's on-screen persona as Hannah Montana? It's like a little bit tortured because she's got this big secret and she's so worried that it's going to ruin her life. And so even though she loves performing, she lives a very fractured existence. Her being like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to have this big secret that is obviously awesome, but she sees as shameful and weird because she's got these two completely segmented identities that no one knows about. It's play on superhero narrative, but it's a very interesting, weird thing to center a teen show around because it's not about her saving the world or anything. It's literally just about her keeping the secret. And that's the narrative driver is that she's always having to make sure no one finds out the secret. What's wrong with your voice? Um, that happens after every concert. You give so much. <laughs> 
I just wish Miley were here. Uh, Miley? Who's Miley? I don't know Miley. That's a strange name. Oh, she's my best friend. Right. Well, then, why don't you go get her? Oh, great idea. I'll call her. No. You know, some of don't really work in here. It has to do with the walls and the cement and... And then, obviously, it's got the requisite stupid Disney Channel jokes, and it's got sometimes good songs and sometimes not good songs, and, like, there's something extremely charming about it. It was, like, the biggest Disney Channel show of all time at the time, and the soundtrack sold so many copies. The first soundtrack debuted at number one, which is totally insane. What kind of music does Hannah Montana make, and how would you describe her musical aesthetic? Yeah, it's kind of like amorphous radio pop rock. It's pretty analogous to the stuff that was popular then if a bit more made by tv executives so it's very bright very shiny arena stadium pop The first record is called Hannah Montana, and it came out in 2007. And the signature song is Hannah's theme song, which is called The Best of Both Worlds, which is like essentially like, hey, I'm this girl with this double life, and sometimes I'm a pop star, and sometimes I'm a normal girl, and that's what makes me awesome, is like, you get the best of both worlds. That's kind of the theme of that song. Yes. Now, on the second record, they kind of split off the Hannah and Miley personas and do one record that's Hannah Montana and one record that's Meet Miley Cyrus. So they start this trend of sort of giving you what are meant to be two separate sides of the character and of Miley herself, I guess. So once they split off the career paths into Hannah and Miley, it was interesting because I think the Hannah stuff stayed a bit shinier and then the Miley stuff was like a fraction more edgy, like just a hair (laughs) more edgy. And I think that's how you were supposed to kind of delineate them simply because I think you were supposed to be buying into this fantasy of Hannah as somewhere headlining stage. So, of course, naturally it would be slightly different aesthetically to real girl Miley, even though the logic breaks my brain. From that era, there's probably like a hundred Hannah Montana songs. She had to make so much music and kind of like... It's unbelievable. On the show, obviously, there's Hannah and Miley. And then there was also Miley. But then in the show, it's only Hannah that makes music. But in real life, it was Hannah and Miley, the real Miley, (laughs) who made music. And then... She did a tour that was like the best of both worlds tour. Where she's like alternating. Where she's alternating, yeah. In this insane way. is extremely meta, but not meta. It wasn't consciously yes. meta. It was just some executive was like, this is the smartest way to do this. And they were right, honestly. It must have been a mind fuck for her, though. I can only imagine. And you're so right. Like, I felt like listening back to the albums where there's like a Hannah side or a Miley side. The next year, there's also a third Hannah Montana record paired the same year with Miley's quote-unquote debut album, which was called Breakout. 
it's really interesting. Like on some level, these songs really do share aesthetics. And like sometimes it can be a little bit difficult to parse apart. Like why this song is a Miley song and why the other one is a Hannah song. Like, as you said, they're just sort of like broadly written pop rock songs, usually about being boy crazy or her crazy double life as like a pop star and a regular girl. And there's one song on these first two records that I feel like it's important for us to pull out as one of the only songs that feels like it is maybe the first glimpse into Miley Cyrus's persona and musical strength, which is the song See You Again, which is like almost born this way-esque rock dance pop stomper. It's almost like more of a Kelly Clarkson thing, maybe. Yes. And that was her first hit where it was like, okay, she is doing something other than being Hannah Montana. It was kind of like, oh, she's a bit more grown up now. Even though when you listen to it, it's indecipherable from that early Hannah to meet Miley mold. I think one of the things that separates Miley on See You Again and Hannah is she does change the register of her voice and she starts to reveal this lowered growl that she sometimes brings to a lot of her great vocal performances. And... You know, See You Again has a bit of a darker edge to it. It's got a little bit of an underbelly, whereas the Hannah songs always feel like incredibly bright. There's something a little bit sinister sounding about See You Again. Yeah, definitely. It's like, even though it's still very teen romance fantasy, there's definitely something like, you're right, kind of sinister about it, kind of dark. And the other thing I think to highlight is that one of the things Miley brings to almost all her work, which I think kind of unifies a lot of her idiosyncratic choices, aesthetically in production, whatever, is that... She always brings this really distinctive country twang to like anything she's doing. Like if it's teen pop rock, if it's trap and hip hop on bangers, if it's psychedelic rock, whatever it is, she always brings this like classic power vocal with a Nashville twang to everything that she does. It sort of brings it all into one aesthetic world that is Miley. I feel like that's one of the one unifying things in a very diffuse body of work is that twang. And that's there from the beginning. You can always tell when it's her singing. And like, I'm not an evangelist about Miley's voice or like any voice in particular. I think a voice is a voice. It's another instrument. But I do think it says a lot about Miley, the way people fixate on her voice. Like, I think it taps into something that people like about her, which is that it harkens back to a completely different era without having to go into production nostalgic thing. Like people identify something in her that they can't articulate that feels very classic. So we have these first couple of Hannah albums. We sort of move through the latter aughts and she releases, as we said, like a series of more Hannah Montana albums. There's a movie soundtrack. There's more Hannah Montana sequels. And then in tandem to this, as we were sort of touching on, she also releases this record Breakout, which is like technically her debut album. And there's a series of hits from these records. And I'm curious how you would characterize them. Like, are they hits out? Outside of the Disney Hannah universe, I'm talking about seven things in particular. Seven things I hate about you. And then also the climbs.
being two examples of songs from this period that I guess start to sort of break her out of the Disney universe and register with broader pop audiences. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, still inextricable from Hannah. I mean, obviously The Climb, in another weirdly meta moment, The Climb was a huge song. You hear it everywhere today. Yeah, she performs it a lot. Yeah, and and yet The Climb is a narrative song. In the film, it's used to talk about her reckoning with the fact that she's going to have to reveal her secret identity. (laughs) Even though it became one of her signature hits, it was still a song that was required in the Hannah Montana movie to communicate plot. Both Seven Things and The Climb as her two biggest hits in this period represent two interesting molds that she'll explore further, which is the one side of her that's kind of like the feisty brat. And then you've got The Climb, which is the straightforward ballad vocal showcase. You can see that split side of her on We Can't Stop and Wrecking Ball too. Those are sort of the two presentations that she tends to give on a lot of her singles. Yeah, absolutely. That's what everyone is reckoning with when they think about Miley, right? She has this yeah. really bratty, annoying perspective persona that you can't help but love because she's also got these really beautiful emotional ballads as well. It's very typical of the rest of her career. Mike, next question for you as we transition from the Hannah Montana era to more of Miley's like official launch of her pop career is, is Miley seen in any way following these songs, despite the fact that many of them are mainstream successes outside of the Disney universe? Like, is she taken seriously in any way or is she still kind of seen at this point essentially as just like a teeny boppers, frivolous Disney? product following the release of all this Hannah Montana stuff and her first couple records. As long as Hannah Montana was still on, she was still seen as Hannah Montana. Hannah Montana had to die so Miley Cyrus could live, you know? (laughs) She definitely tried everything she could to kill that bitch. This is a tried and true pop star conundrum when a pop star becomes famous in the Disney universe and generally when they become famous when they're 15 years old or so. They have to go through this phase where they're like, I need to leave behind my teen persona and I have to find a way to establish myself as a legit adult pop star. So what are some of the challenges that a child star transitioning to an adult pop star faces? And what are some of the ways in the past that they have attempted to signal adultness to us that maybe Miley was looking to as a blueprint in this moment? Well, it's that classic thing, right? No teenager who makes their image as a child star no teenager wants to maintain that people are very cynical about oh this pop star is trying to look all grown up now whatever it's like no well they are grown up i think a lot of the time when these child or teen stars go through their radical reinventions people are very like oh it's such a cynical move but it's like that's what teens do like teens get weird haircuts and start dressing in ugly provocative outfits or whatever like (laughs) sure maybe there's like a whole team behind them but i think there is something very true to just the general teen experience about it very clearly maybe she was trying to follow in the britney mold Christina, obviously, to a slightly lesser extent, Justin. Obviously, Justin grew up, but I think people never really cared or scrutinized it in the same way. Well, of course, because he was a white man and that. Exactly. So I think it's definitely kind of like in the Britney slash Christina mold, but I think in a weird way, it was maybe both easier but less straightforward for Miley to do it, if that makes sense. It was tried and true, but as you said, it can start to feel cynical the more that the formula gets redone and redone and redone, essentially. Also, simply because Christina and Britney did not also have entire ranges of merchandise based on this character that was synonymous with themselves and there was not 
an entire brand. Obviously, pop stars are all brands, but I think it was more like it's just them. Whereas with Miley, it's like to grow up, she really had to remove herself from the Hannah Montana world entirely, which is so hard when you are Hannah Montana for all intents and purposes. And I think, let's be frank about Britney in particular, her music and presentation was never as G-rated as Hannah Montana's was. Yeah. From the minute Britney traipsed down that hallway with her shirt tied up and shimmying and Hit Me Baby One More Time is a very sexual song on the surface. Whatever Britney's evolution towards a more embodied adult female version of sexuality that happened on like whatever Britney or In The Zone or whatever it was, she did not have as far to travel as Miley Cyrus did from the most G-rated music you have ever heard in your life and the most chaste presentation, which I also think speaks to the kind of music they made. I mean, Britney was always making some form of dance pop or R&B, whereas this sort of pop rock vibe that Hannah Montana was in was always using guitars to connote edge so that the music and persona could actually be completely edgeless on some level. So I think that was the other part of it, which was that like Miley really had a lot more to nuke than Britney and even Christina really ever did. At least Britney and Christina, while they were geared towards teens, were always trying to at least also appeal to mainstream adult audiences on some level, whereas like Hannah Montana felt like it was fully siphoned off as like an exclusively teen phenomenon and thus was very chaste and G-rated in that way. Yeah, and Hannah Montana was a behemoth. Right. That was a movie and there were blockbuster albums and there were blockbuster tours and it wasn't so simple as I think a lot of the time graduating to that more adult zone is also a ploy to graduate to wider commercial success and as we very clearly saw for Miley it required the kind of opposite and she was forced to give up this massive, massive commercial success in order to effectively reboot her career. Right. So the first, it's weird to call it her breakout adult hit because it still feels almost like a child's rhyme or something like that, is this massive hit from an EP she releases in 2009 called The Time of Our Lives. And it's called Party in the USA. I mean, perhaps you've heard of it before. <laughs> So this song becomes by far Miley's biggest hit to date. It peaks at number two on the Hot 100 and is kind of like, I would say her first post Hannah Montana success. Can you talk a little bit about the story of this song to the extent that you know it and what this song is doing in terms of providing a bridge from Hannah Montana into the sort of adult Miley Cyrus pop career? Yeah, and it's interesting, right? Because Hannah was still airing at this point. It was on its last season. So Party in the USA, Dr. Luke, Boo, and Jesse J wrote it together for Jesse J. Jesse J decided it was not edgy enough, so they gave it to Miley. It wasn't originally called something like I'm gonna love it in the USA, because it was sung from a Brit's perspective. Yeah, 
the less I have to think about Jessie J, the less I try to. And she didn't even want it. She took it because she needed an extra song for that EP, The Time of Our Lives. And right. it was a space filler. And then it just became this massive smash. I think because it appeals to this universal basic jingoism, it is really like nationalistic, but without being an America first song. Sure. It's almost like a country song, really, when you listen back to it. Weirdly, yeah. Even in the way that it's a narrative. I mean, the entire story literally walks you beat by beat through a story about what Miley's going through. It's essentially a song about a girl who's now taking her first steps into adulthood. I think the premise essentially is she's moving away from home to LA to pursue her dreams of some sort of stardom. I mean, that's the premise of the story that is unveiled in the song. With a dream, my cardigan. Welcome to the land of fame, excess. Am I gonna fit in? Which makes a lot of sense with where Miley was at in her career, like yet sort of another like meta narrative about Miley Cyrus transitioning from Disney star to, to legit pop star in a sense. Yeah, which is so funny because it's still got the Britishisms of, oh, she's wearing a cardigan for some reason. And like, I think she already <laughs> lived in LA at this point, all that kind of stuff. It's and just let me like, tell you, you rarely need a cardigan in LA. Yeah, let me tell you. <laughs> it's very like, I think that's only the kind of thing that you're wearing if you're Jessie J and you're moving from London to LA. I, <laughs> Like, and it's so weird, right? Because it more has that meet Miley Cyrus tone to it. It's very Hannah Montana vibes, actually. Yeah, totally. And it's still her enduring, maybe defining hit, apart from maybe We Can't Stop or Wrecking Ball. Which is a sign of how hard it's been for her to shake the Hannah Montana thing. I mean, as try as she might, this is still the version of her that many people seem to prefer. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, she still performs it now. I think she can't outrun it. And so maybe she's stopped trying to. So this is a surprise novelty smash as i mentioned it goes to number two and soon after miley begins to roll out her technically either second or third album although i don't know if meet miley cyrus actually counts as her debut album or not but maybe her second official album and it's called can't be tamed so shad talk to me a little bit about what miley is going for aesthetically both in terms of her music and in terms of the way she's shifting the way that she looks and presents herself visually during this can't be tamed era. How is she attempting to break out, no pun intended, using this music? Well, it's weird. I had kind of memory hold this album until I was preparing Me for too. this. Like, in my head, she went straight from breakout to bangers. That would have been crazy, though. I'm almost <laughs> happy that this exists because at least we have this, like, minor stepping stone in between the two things. Yes, it's very weird. So it's... It's like throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Electro pop. The video for the song Can't Be Tamed has a bad romance style dance in it. It's very clear that Lady Gaga is the biggest pop star in the world when you both listen to this album and look at the visuals from it. Yes. However, something I was thinking about when I was listening to Can't Be Tamed is that Breakout, it's using the guitars as kind of signpost for edginess. And this album is using Britney Blackout, that sound, as a signpost for like faux embattlement. Piece of me. This is all my dad, that Britney Sheamus. You want a piece of me. 
She hadn't had any real controversies at this point, but then Can't Be Tamed sounds so much like Diet Blackout, and she's saying like, oh, Can't Be Tamed, Can't Be Blamed, Can't Be Chained, whatever those lyrics are, and it's like, okay, they're trying to make it seem as if she's going through all the same weird tabloid dramas as Britney is, but without having her actually do it, because it's got that danger, bloodshine, avant, piece of me, break the ice. I thought it was really interesting. They're totally wanting to make it feel as if she's responding to something, but she just isn't. It's very strange strange record. As you said, she's not embattled in controversy at this time, but it's almost like as any student of pop music and pop star trajectories would know in a put on way, she knows that in order to signal adultness, she has to be combative and she has to be more salacious. And it's almost like it's a total idea to me feeling more than it is any sort of actual personal evolution reflected in music. I mean, that's the vibe that I get listening to this. This is a studied replica of what other pop stars have done in a more embodied way before her. That's what this record feels like to me. Yeah, but it's also kind of perfunctory. And I think that was maybe the intention. As we'll see, Can't Be Tamed is at this point the biggest flop of Miley's career. She releases one single from it. She's kind of surrounded in controversy. Like people are kind of being like, oh, she's being too provocative. But then it's also not a huge controversy, but it's enough that the new Hannah Montana soundtrack tanks and it essentially sinks the trajectory of her career so far, kind of in intentionally it feels a little more like they wanted everyone to just forget about her and then she took a little hiatus to focus on acting which was also a flop she could not (laughs) find a critically acclaimed role to save her life but she sinks this album perhaps intentionally i would say intentionally intentionally she talked shit about it whilst it was being promoted i mean she was like overtly not into it an important underbelly of this story is this record is still released on hollywood records and it's still produced and written largely by their stable rock mafia and all of these people of producers and songwriters. So it reminds me a little bit of Stars Dance, the Selena Gomez album, where it's like, it's framed as this big coming out party, but it's still this Disney sanctioned and very controlled coming out party that does not feel like any sort of actual artistic impetus on the part of the star and more just totally following some sort of formula that's like pretty see-through when you look at it. Yeah, absolutely. It's okay, well, I still have to be Hannah. I can't fully go crazy and take a real controversy So They can send me these fake blackout songs. They can send me some fake Lady Gaga dance moves. Afterwards, she took this quiet pointed hiatus from music. I think so that she could completely reset. Can't Be Tamed is the perfect end point because it's so nothing like it's so bland if this album had been even a little bit good or had any hits in any way I think it almost would have been more difficult for her to return in the way that she did so is it safe to say that following Campy Tame's significant underperformance and your hiatus that you've been pointing out that Miley is not being taken seriously in any way following this record as a potential pop icon? Like, what, how is the general public interfacing with Miley's pop career following Campy Tame, like from, let's say, 2010 to 2012? This is her, I'm going to focus on acting hiatus. And she's in like, <laughs> LOL, which is an American remake of a French movie wow. that critics hated. That. Every year it's weird. We are going back to school. But here we are just going with the flow. She's in So Undercover, which is about a high school student who's also an FBI agent. Molly Morris isn't like most teenage girls. I'm going in. She's a private investigator. Hey, what the? It's a plenty of three. But 
when the in just all these terrible films, <laughs> she's just a teen star has been curio at this point. Aside from knowing who she used to be, it's almost like she's just a completely different person with the same name when she returns in 2013. So in terms of setting up this next era of Miley's career, which begins with 2013's Bangers, how does she start to reemerge as a musical artist in 2013? Before Bangers, she started the Backyard Sessions, where she performs covers of all these classic songs, extremely faithful covers, I might add. Jolene. very faithfully covering all these classic songs, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. And it's essentially a way of being like, I have chops, I have a voice, this is why you liked me. Essentially her being like, take me seriously again. And then she reintroduces herself fully with We Can't Stop, which is the fulcrum point of her career. Like it is the single most important moment of Miley Cyrus at any point in her career. It is what changes everything. That is the beginning of the Bangers era. So talk to me about We Can't Stop. What does this song sound like? What is this video like? And how does this reintroduce Miley Cyrus as a kind of completely different artist as you were talking about? So We Can't Stop, one of my favorite Miley songs. I love it. A perfect song. Produced by Mike Will, which is crucial. Mm -hmm. He's the architect of the sound behind this new era of Miley and becomes one of her closest collaborators. And she, in turn, is very responsible for making him a household name in a bad way, potentially. But also as a pop producer, I mean, he was known mainly for producing rap records. His primary collaborator prior to this was Future. He was known more as a rap and hip hop producer and this was kind of his biggest foray so far. Maybe besides a couple of tracks with Rihanna, he had produced Pour It Up, I think at this point, into pop, essentially. Yeah, so his first big foray into pop. And the song and video are kind of like instantly outrageous because she's talking about doing Molly. In the video, she's twerking and hard partying to this weird trap ballad. And it's just instantly sets fire to everything that Miley had previously done quite consciously. I think it was kind of hard to anticipate just what a tabloid fixture it would make Miley and how successful it was. There's something fascinating about We Can't Stop as ground zero for this era of Miley's career, both the video and the song. So as you were talking about, the song is almost like chill, which is really interesting considering what a hot rod of controversy it was. The video, which I believe was directed by Diane Martel, is almost grotesque. I mean, it's lit in this very harsh light. There's like puking green goo and her pretending to chop her fingers off and pink goo pouring out and almost acid trippy elements like people dressed up as teddy bears. And as will come as no surprise to anyone who lived through this era, Miley in her underwear having a house party and being sexual, but in 
a combative way. It doesn't feel like she's being sexual in like a salacious way. It almost feels like I'm being sexual because that's what I need to do in order to kill what you knew of me before. It feels very combative sexually as opposed to like actually lascivious on some level. Yeah, and something from this era that really sticks in my mind, one piece of writing is when Lindsay Zolads went to see the Bangers tour. Yeah. She articulated it really well. She talks about this pivot to brazen sexuality for Miley never really felt like it was catering to anyone other than herself. It was very performative. It was sexual, but it wasn't necessarily sexy and it wasn't necessarily pandering to any kind of gaze, which I think you can definitely see in the video. It's weird. Everything from this era is aesthetically strange. Garish. Yeah, garish, strange, totally bizarre, but you can see where she's coming from. She would say stuff to the contrary after bangers, but it felt at the time like this was actually the kind of thing that she liked and the thing that she was into making, you know? Well, there's like almost a profound awkwardness to We Can't Stop and a number of the songs on Bangers because her adopting this sort of rapping hip hop persona that she does on this song, it's an awkward fit on record. She doesn't sound particularly natural saying some of these lyrics that were actually originally written for Rihanna. And you can imagine Rihanna delivering it in an entirely different way because this guise is such a more natural fit for Rihanna, for obvious reasons. There's something so strange and put on, and you say as sort of something that she's doing just for her own self, about her talking about her homegirls with the big butts and getting turned up and twerking and all this stuff. It's awkward sounding, but that somehow weirdly in retrospect is the song's charm which is what I was sort of registering it as going back through it this time like it is weird and awkward but yet that's why it's so memorable and almost like quaint and adorable looking back at it yeah it's just like fun I have so many memories this song came out right as I was in peak high school beginning to go to parties and stuff and people were just obsessed with this song everyone loved this song I think something about it connected with this teen rebellion when you're very stupid and don't understand anything about the world or like partying or anything and so you just hear this song about being a party legend and you're like oh yeah like that's yeah. pretty cool. And it's very innocent in a weird way. I agree. And I think the point about the fun is so important and leads me to the next topic I want to get into before we talk about the rest of Bangers, which is I did get the sense going back to this period that she was having a blast and that is what made this work. It's fun when a pop star really just like seems like they're cutting loose and having fun. And I really do feel like Bangers is characterized by that for better and worse. And it led to her making some decisions. I wonder if she ultimately regrets or if she has the ability to regret them. I mean, I don't really know. But let's talk a little bit also because before Bangers came out, she did this infamous performance on the VMAs with Robin Thicke that has become notorious. Again, it really did seem, at least from her perspective, going back and looking at this performance, which I think is controversial mainly because she twerks and Robin Thicke is sort of now seen as a bit of a slime ball. I was having trouble totally locating exactly why this performance is such a hot rod of controversy because to me, it just looks like it's stupid. She seems like a little bit of an idiot during it, but in a delightful, almost fun way.
this was also peak Tumblr era, right? And I was on Tumblr and right. it was the peak your favors problematic vibes. And so the controversy yes. was about this white Disney starlet adopting the aesthetics and sound of black music and also using black dancers pretty blatantly as props. Yes, that was the main awkward moment that I registered that happens in both the video and the performance is there's a fuller figured woman shaking her butt and Miley like stops and slaps her on the ass in this way that feels bizarre and weird. So I think there were these two poles of controversy, which is one, the cultural appropriation allegations, right. and two, that it was just a very strange, like she had this foam finger and she was like grinding on Robin Thicke. I think something about it felt so in bad taste. And I think that's all that people mm -hmm. didn't like about it. Oh my God, is it in bad taste? Because it's not like it was sexy or particularly fun mm -hmm. to watch. It was just weird and gross <laughs> and maybe meant to outrage. I think that's why a lot of this controversy around it started is simply because it's not really doing what Miley thought it was doing. I think it was doing exactly what she thought it was doing. It is so programmed to outrage. That's the irritating part about it, maybe, is the cynicism of like, she knew what she needed to do to get the attention that she wanted. And it was icky. I mean, of course, I understand the cultural appropriation aspect of it. I just think it's funny looking back at it. Those signifiers aside, which were going on already, that's kind of, I guess, the point that I mean about why the performance seems like a little bit, why was this the moment? Because the whole song is a giant cultural appropriation mess. I mean, from the minute we heard the song, from the minute we saw the video, it was obvious that she was this white girl that was picking up these elements of hip-hop culture to help create a new image for herself as a pop star, and that is inherently icky. I don't know that the performance itself did anything that the song and video weren't already doing. No, it just accelerated it, and it's like a very concentrated package of what was happening. Right. But you're right. I mean, it was undeniably successful. I guess it was just a very strange thing to be seeking for Miley. Obviously, you can't have this era of Miley's career without the controversy and without her pathological foot and mouth disease and without so <laughs> many different cringe aspects of it. But weirdly, I think the controversy does a disservice to my favorite Miley Cyrus record, an album that I think is genuinely weird and good and oh has God. so many great songs. Let's talk about it. What else is going on on Bangers? So she does the performance, the album comes out. Describe to me what's going on musically on Bangers, the album. Okay, so there's almost too much to pass. Basically, <laughs> on the top level, let's think about it in, it's like the meme where it's like the brain, like the galaxy brain meme. Yeah. So like at the top one, the most simplistic viewing, it is this rap-oriented reinvention for Miley Cyrus. On that first level, it's got a collaboration with Future and it's got Big Sean and it's got French Montana and it's got all these rap-oriented songs, a lot of songs where she very awkwardly raps and does weird, <laughs> genuinely bad vocal performances on the second level you have this album that features some of her best ever songwriting some of her most beautiful love songs so you've got adore you which is the opening track which is basically her articulating her undying love for liam hemsworth who at this point has been her yes. on again off again boyfriend for a while got My Darling, mm -hmm. which is one of my favorite songs of hers ever. This beautiful country ballad with Future. Cause we gon' make a movie, a movie, 
And then on the bonus track version, you've got Rootin' For My Baby, which is like maybe her best song ever. So good. Almost like a folk song. Yeah. And then on this next brain level, it is her perhaps successfully, perhaps unsuccessfully trying to fuse country with rap and a very early example of that in the mainstream. I'm a female rebel, can't you tell? Bang on the dashboard, just shift a nail. Lean at the window, that's when I yell. Driving so fast, but the piss on myself. I wrote down, Chad. Is this a country album? Yeah, well, it pretty much is. I mean, like, My Darling definitely is rooting for my baby. And then there's obviously little bits here and there. And then on this most Galaxy Brain level, it is just straight up a concept album about her and Liam and their future marriage. And it's very weird. I went back to this a lot when I was reviewing Plastic Hearts because I think it is pretty much a direct parallel to that album. Obviously, that's her divorce Mm -hmm. record. And this is the one where she's so optimistic and so positive about their relationship it's really sad and weird comparing those two albums just how cynical she got but emotionally this very open-hearted record about their relationship which i think got lost in all the madness is that it's very traditional and it's about how she's only got her one true love and like ends with her quoting the bible like it's deeply traditionalist in in all these crazy ways She's hopeful for her relationship, but there's also some like almost weird breakups. I mean, Drive is a song Mm, that sounds like it's dealing with some of the more complicated difficulties perhaps she was experiencing in terms of having a long-term relationship going on. But I completely agree. The controversy stirred up around this album that she purposefully laid as a top layer in public obscured a pretty layered record that deals with a lot of different themes, topics, and reveals a lot of sides of her that almost she's never quite been able to reveal to us in such full form ever again, I would potentially argue. And I definitely love the notion of this as a country song beyond just the songs that are overtly country, like My Darling, as you pointed out. Again, I come back to the fact that like the way Miley sings makes almost every song she makes somehow a country song. Even We Can't Stop, she sings in this twang that almost makes it sound less like a rap song to me and more like a country song. And now those two genres have come together in such a way that this song feels like it's setting a table for an entire new subgenre of music, whether she knew that or not. So there's layers to this thing. Definitely. And it is interesting. I think you identified something that is and always will be true about Miley's music is that no matter how bizarre it gets, there's this deep pathos in her voice that carries any song. And I think a song like Drive, which is one of my favorites on the album, is a perfect example of that. It's very musical theater and I don't think it's a good song, but she fucking sells it. She really, really goes in. Oh my God. It's one of her best vocal performances for sure. And speaking of pathos, Pathos, the second single, which becomes her first number one, is this Dr. Luke produced ballad called Wrecking Ball. So let's talk a bit about Wrecking Ball, what's going on on that song and what that reveals to us about Miley's artistry. So Wrecking Ball, her first number one, and again, it does the whole the climb thing. You know, it is the flip side of We Can't Stop. It is like this deeply yes. emotional, quite spare ballad. We clawed, we chained our hearts in 
then we jumped never asking why we kissed i fell under your spell of love no one could deny right it's like this song about the way that love can also destroy and it's this spare synth only verses punctuated by this almost dubstepian hard rock chorus I will always appreciate the gap of a bar that happens between the end of the verse and the first chorus is one of the great touches of the song. I will always love you too. Three. I can't. She doesn't do it on the second verse, but it's a very effective little moment of silence that helps drive the chorus home. It is. I mean, on one hand, this is quite a mature ballad, but then on the other hand, she's got this Terry Richardson directed video where she's naked and she's smashing shit up, and that once again subsumes the whole music. It is all people talk about. It's hard to make sense of that too, Shad, because it's like, on the one hand, I feel like I intuitively want to say, why the fuck did she do that? Like, why did she make this music video that bastardized an otherwise straight-ahead incredible pop record? But on the other hand, it was an extremely successful tactic. She got the spotlight on her in a way that I wonder, like, if the music on its own would have. We can never know, but it's a really interesting dichotomy there between, like, the part of me that was re-watching the Wrecking Ball video last night and being like, this is so irritating. I don't want to see this. I don't want to watch her licking a fucking sledgehammer I don't want to see her naked body again. Like, okay, and we can't stop. At least that's like a fun turn up weird party song to begin with. Why? Why are we doing this? But yet it's incredibly memorable and it's part of why this era was so effective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've tried to reckon with this a lot in my life and I think it's just one of those things where you can't have one without the other. In a weird way, her persona as a walking train wreck helps sell (laughs) the emotional volatility of the album. Yeah, I mean, and it has some great production. I mean, I think one thing, and I maybe we differ on this a little bit moving forward, but I think Miley's choice in producers has often let her down in many of her subsequent albums. And I think this is one of the only times, and I include Can't Be Tamed in this, I include this through a lot of her discography, she's let down by the material and production that she's given. She's left with like maybe B-list production on some stuff. This is one of the only times where I feel like she really got a lot of state-of-the-art production for its time period. Yeah, Mike Will really meets her on her level. I think it is a collaboration and I almost think he should also be credited on this album because I think even though it's such a mess, it's also a perfect producer pop star pairing. It's just one of the greats. It's just so insane and shouldn't work, but somehow they have this symbiosis that you cannot explain. Absolutely. And like the weird thing is I love this album, but I do know it's unlistenable. I had a fucking blast listening to it this time. This album has only grown on me over time. Like, I really look back on it now mostly fondly and thought every song that came on, I was like, oh, yeah, I love this one, too. Oh, yeah, I love that one, too. Oh, yeah, this is like a very solid collection of music. The other thing I want to point out about it that seems kind of brilliant looking back was this was the crash year of EDM. I mean, this was the year where every pop star that had been living in that world since 2009, that bubble 
was starting to burst and hip hop was going to start to take center stage, especially in American pop music, but I think globally as the center subgenre of pop music moving forward. And this record really got that before many other people got that and set the table for that. A less savvy pop star who was trying to have a big record in 2013 would have made a dance pop album. But there was something very smart about the way they went about this, even though it was cynical and even though it's laden with a lot of cultural appropriative nonsense, obviously. This record was smartly on the pulse of where pop music was heading moving forward. Yeah, and if you think about a song like Dark Horse, which is Katy Perry's attempt at a trap right. crossover, it feels so much less yeah. authentic than anything on Bangers. Or Jewels and Drugs, Shad. Do you want to talk about Jewels and Drugs? Um, I always want to talk about Jewels and Drugs, but <laughs> we don't have the two we don't hours. We have the time. Requisite. That's its own 90-minute yeah, show. Exactly. <laughs> So is this record successful in everything that Miley had sort of envisioned for it? Like, does this establish her as a mainstream adult pop star? Does this cleave her from Hannah Montana finally? Like, is she successful in her goals with this? Yeah, definitely. Undeniably so. It is the thing that changes her career. Right. It is such an important record for her. It completely resets her as someone who, after Bangers, she was no longer outrunning Hannah Montana, but she was outrunning Bangers. Like, everything's since then mm. has been in response in some way to bangers. I agree. And I remember thinking, God, this is just the beginning. We're about to get hit era after hit era. And that's what's always fascinated me about the choices she's made after this. How do you look back at the cultural appropriation? Like, how do you see that aspect of it? That was such a huge element of this era for her. Through our 2022 lens, how do you interface with that whole discussion looking back at it? Like, does it ruin this on some level or was it overblown? Like, how do you see that? It's hard for me to grapple with it. I think it's inextricable from the era and from the music to the point where it's almost like I can't even conceptualize where one begins and where the other ends. But I guess my response to that is like, I love the album. I think it's undeniably one of her most cringe moments. Yeah, I think my point to you earlier is like, the cringiness is a feature, not a detriment. Like, I think on some level, like the overt, ridiculous, unself-aware, but maybe also totally self-aware, I don't even know what to say, cringe factor of this whole era is what made this era. This era would have been nothing without that, and I mean that as a musical aesthetic, and I mean that as a general aesthetic. That is what makes this so memorable, is that it was bizarre and awkward, and I think that's a feature rather than a bug on some level. Absolutely, yeah. So, Miley has this massive successful moment. I would say probably her only truly fully embodied successful moment as a really centrist mainstream pop star. Her image sort of begins to change following this, away from the hip-hop guys that she had adopted this like Rihanna light guys Rihanna on an acid trip I don't even know how to describe it image that she had put on for herself and starts to morph into this stoner I think she got kind of like dreadlocks at a certain point and all of a sudden she's collaborating very openly with Wayne Coyne from the Flaming Lips on new music that ultimately culminates in her next record which is a free album that she gives away following the VMAs everybody listen up Listen up, my new album, Miley Cyrus and Her Dead Pets, is online for free right now. Thank you for tuning into the fucking VMAs. I'll see y'all next year. A 95-minute 
psych rock record called Miley Cyrus and Her Dead Pets. What do you make of her decision for that to be the next thing that she did and like what that says to us? You were touching on this a little at the beginning of our conversation about how she's envisioning herself and her pop career. It speaks to this innate quality about Miley, which is that she has to do something different. I don't think she would willingly stay on the same path. And I also think maybe there was a conscious effort here to slightly distance herself from the cultural appropriation narrative. I tried to find the original article and it was like a bad gateway. I'm not sure whether the article's gone or whether I just couldn't find it. But on the day that she released Dead Pets, she was talking shit about Nicki Minaj in the New York Times, right? Sure. Which led to one Mm -hmm. of the top five pop culture moments. Now to this bitch who had a lot to say about me in the press the other day. (laughs) Miley, what's good? And now, (laughs) back to this bitch that had a lot to say about me the other day in the press. Miley, what's good? Hey. We're all in this industry. We all do interviews and we all know how they manipulate. Nikki, congratulations. And uh, just because the VMAs have already started doesn't mean that the voting is done. Truly remember the moment I saw it for the first time and the chill it sent up my spine on Miley's behalf. I was like, bitch, run, run. I know. It's incredible. It is like the most amazing iconic because i think what a lot of people wanted to see from miley in this era was not even contrition but any kind of acknowledgement that she had done something wrong and so then (laughs) miley is hosting the vmas and nikki who was on kind of like a parallel stage to her has won this award and looks directly at her and is like why were you talking shit about me and of course it was different to like contrition for the bangers era but it was some kind of public dressing down and i think it was so perfect Yeah, and it was from the premier black woman from within the hip-hop community kind of being like, bitch, you've been out here acting crazy and using us in this way, and then you have the nerve to go, like, literally talk shit about me in public. It was like she had taken a step too far, and it was almost like a comeuppance that people needed to see for catharsis or something like that. Yeah, and I was reading Megan Garvey's review of Dead Pets, and she makes such a good point, which is that it's so ironic that Miley wouldn't look at Nikki and be like, okay, that's the career path I want. That's how I can be a weird, chaotic woman making pretty incredible art that is completely anti-mainstream. So you have Miley What's Good, and then that very night she releases Dead Pets for free on SoundCloud as the big finale to the VMAs where she was just pulled out straight up. Dead Pets, it is objectively awful. (laughs) There are very few albums in the world that you can be like, that album is objectively terrible, but this is like one of them. It's so hard to listen to. I have done... 40 episodes of this show for every single episode I have listened to every single album that the person has released in preparation for it this was the first time I got 50 minutes into Miley Cyrus and her dead pets a 95 minute album and I was like I can't go on. I can't listen to any more of this. Like, it actually put me in a weird mood. I went from, like, being kind of happy to feeling kind of, like, distressed and upset and, like, icky and weird. I cannot stand this album. And I want to quote Megan, the god, wrote of this album. The whole Dead Pets is a borderline unlistenable slog 
through dorm room poncho bullshit and blissfully ignorant acidic cones delivered earnestly from an ex-child star seemingly unaware of how fundamentally inseparable her own privilege is from her quote do whatever the fuck you want to do all the time ethos and enabled by a 54 year old who should know better I thought, what else can you say about dead pets? Well, that's that's all, basically what this is. That's all we need to say on it. Like, there's nothing else <laughs> to say. Like, that's literally all it is. My perception of this also is that it was basically received with an thud. I mean, I don't think anybody besides, like, the most ardent Miley fans or, like, the music community engaged with this record pretty much at all. No, maybe part of that is its delivery. Like, I'm not sure that it was available widely outside SoundCloud for maybe a couple of years afterwards, but it was the end to the Bangers era. Like, it was the can't be tamed of the Bangers <laughs> era. Truly. It was the, okay, that's enough. We're just not going to talk about this again. And I mean, afterwards, we have another famous Miley hiatus. You know, she kind of is like, okay, I got to reset. Burnt up all her goodwill. But I'm like, has there ever in pop history been such a hard pivot after such a huge success. I mean, she had worked so hard to get to that point at Bangers where she was at the pinnacle of her success. I mean, she had tried over and over again to break out of the Disney image. She pulled out all the stops to make Bangers the biggest pop moment of that period. And then she just sort of turned around and kind of like threw it out pretty quickly. It's always intrigued me. I mean, I've always just been fascinated by that. And that's what I say. Maybe admirable is the wrong word, but it's definitely bold and maybe actually more speaks to her privilege. Like she knew she was kind of set for life on some level. So maybe she didn't even have the need to keep this train running on some level. I mean, I don't know what it was, but it's definitely one of the strangest pivots in a pop star's career that I have interfaced with during making of this show. Yeah. I think you touch on something important with Miley, which is like, she doesn't need money. She doesn't even need to be successful right. to stay famous. And so it's like, why wouldn't you make a 95-minute album with the Flaming Lips and release it for free? It's not really like any of this matters beyond yeah. the maintenance and continued drive she feels to force people to engage with her. <laughs> I think a lot of her career is like pure ego trip. It's like sad to say that it's produced some amazing music, but it's like when that first Hannah Montana album sold 3 million copies, she was set. I mean, she was set for the moment she was born because achy breaky heart made her family so much money it's, it's like all of this it's the do whatever the fuck you want attitude you know because she can it is one of the most egotistical pop albums i've ever heard in my entire life i've, I've nary listened to something so self-indulgent as miley cyrus and her dead pets and i haven't even gotten through it i don't think i got through it the first time i listened to it when it came out and i certainly did not this time so you say miley goes on a hiatus after this she returns in 2017 with this album younger now Now, this is yet another head-spinning aesthetic pivot that is way less thrilling than the last few have been because it's a pivot to the center where I feel like she's not particularly well-suited. Talk to me a little bit about Younger Now, what the vision and aesthetic of this record is and how effective you feel like it is for Miley. Younger Now is her Joanne. Um, <laughs> exactly. It's like a family-oriented <laughs> return to one's roots. It is vaguely yes. country adjacent. It's got a shade of Casey Musgraves pageant material. It's a mm -hmm. very I'm a down-home, weed-smoking, simple, family-loving country Trigal.
She did a lot of press where she was like, hip-hop, that shit's all just materialistic and stupid and I was done with that. I mean, as a fan of bangers, I found that very insulting in the moment because I was like, this is a good album and I thought you were committed and into it and now you're being like, actually it was the dumb costume that everyone made it out to Actually be. proved all her doubters correct in like one sentence. Yeah, exactly. She does Younger Now. It once again sinks like a stone. I think Malibu is a pretty good song, but it's obviously quite milquitoast. It's not one of her greatest. I think it's pretty good. Do you think this was an attempt at a commercial comeback? Was that the impetus behind sort of pivoting to this middle of the road pop rock country sound? Like, was this a cynical decision or was this an artistic decision? That's my question. I think it was probably cynical. Miley's most successful moments have aligned with the times where you can feel that she most cares about the sound. So bangers and plastic hearts. I think it was a conscious readjustment she really needed to get back to the middle after veering so hard into controversy with bangers and dead pets. She knew all oh, the goodwill was burned. I think she just needed to get solid footing again, which this kind of did with Malibu. Kind of. But I wonder sometimes listening to this record, there also is this narrative thrust upon Miley of like, you're so naturally talented. If you could just drop the antics, you could probably make like a really good straight ahead classic pop record. And I've always wondered if Younger Now was like her saying, okay, let me give that a whirl. Let me give like what some people might say they want from me a try. And I think it was just very poorly executed on that level because A, as we talked about earlier, I think middle of the road is not a good thing for Miley. Like she works well in extremes and this music is also very chill. So it doesn't give her a chance to really sort of like sink her teeth in vocally or in terms of her persona. So it ends up missing all of the things that you like about Miley even if they're garish and awkward. Yeah, it's boring and it's bland and it's what other people were doing at the time you know, like it is analogous to Joanne or whatever. It feels very like why would she do that? And also the fact that there aren't a ton of outside songwriters on this record highlights her weakness as a songwriter. Like Miley actually really does need assists from other writers in order to like fully deliver in terms of lyrics. Overall, as you said this is yet another in a series of flops, which I think is really interesting because coming off of Younger Now, coming off of Dead Pets, two real underperformers in a row. I kind of feel like Miley has always somehow seemed like she's continued to be like a top-tier contemporary pop star through all of these flops. Do you vibe with that characterization or do you feel like these records really tanked her in terms of like her actual commercial fortunes like or how she was perceived by the general public? I think I kind of see it as an inverse of that. I think she's maintained a level of celebrity and I think it's almost been impossible for the layperson to pass how successful or unsuccessful she is. Like I think even Banger's era, you're not really conscious of whether it's her biggest era yet. Obviously that album was huge but I think it's hard to tell for Miley when something is a flop but when it isn't just because she's omnipresent, that's what so many people find annoying about her is that she is the star that refuses to go away, <laughs> no matter how hard people try. Like she's good at staying famous even while this music is going nowhere, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Because she is a celebrity first and a pop star second, maybe. Malibu, that was like a pretty big radio hit. It peaked at number eight on the Hot 100 or something. Mm-hmm. Like Young Now probably did a lot for just keeping her in the conversation. I also think it's this patina she has of 
being such a talent and being such a talented performer and the voice thing. I mean, you were touching on the fact that that doesn't register for you really personally. But I do think there's this general perception that, you know, through all of these missteps in terms of her aesthetic choices, Miley's ultimately a world-class performer and singer. And whenever she puts a spotlight on that, whether it be through covers, I think that was the impetus behind her releasing this live album recently. Like, if she can kind of keep that front and center, people still perceive her as an A-list pop star, regardless of whether she has hit records or not. So anyway, so Miley comes off of these series of albums. I think she starts to find her footing in terms of what you've been hinting at related to Plastic Hearts in her collaboration with Mark Ronson, which is the song Nothing Breaks Like a Heart, which is a clear update of Dolly Parton's Jolene, maybe where she starts to kind of like fuse what she's doing in the covers with some of her original music, where she basically is making what is like more or less a cover or an updated version of a classic song. Yeah. This world can hurt you. It cuts you deep and leaves a scar. Things fall apart, but nothing breaks like a heart. She releases like a series of stuff. There's this EP, She Is Coming, which is like not, I mean, I don't even know how much time we should spend on it. The song that really I think sets the stage for Plastic Hearts is this song Slide Away, which is one of my personal favorite Miley songs. It's almost like a rock ballad and it's one of her best vocal performances and one of her most emotionally packed. Do you agree? Are you a Slide Away person? Yeah, it's one of my favorite Miley songs. this period right because she is coming was supposed to be the first of three eps and then all this crazy stuff happens to her her house burns down in that giant fire she gets divorced yeah and she's like okay i'm gonna cancel this material that is i think done in the wake of this twin tragedy she completely resets releases slide away which is maybe her most truly personal feeling song ever it's about a divorce it's got this grip pop thing going on which i really like and also like a kind of grungy guitar it sort of like helps set the stage for the rock aesthetic of plastic hearts in that way yeah and that song gave one of my favorite performances she ever did was the yeah exactly i thought that was really really good packs like a real emotional punch yeah and i think it also has some of her best lyrics as well so all this crazy stuff happens to her and she basically completely resets writes a whole bunch of new material that is undeniably probably a lot better than whatever was going to be on She is Miley Cyrus, which is what that last album is going to be. So we're sort of setting up the fact that she then returns in 2020 with her most recent record, Plastic Hearts. You reviewed this album in Pitchfork and gave it an overall good review, although with some interesting caveats, I would say. You said, still the various successes of Plastic Hearts make you wonder what Cyrus would sound like if she was paired with Jonathan Ratto, who has helmed classic sounding records by The Killers, etc., or Ariel Reichstadt, who has produced Times Women in Music 3 and all of their other music, or Rostam. More than anything, Plastic Hearts raises questions like this in the process of highlighting a potential future career path. What if Miley Cyrus became an actual rock star? So what do you mean by that exactly? And how does that help us understand like what your perspective is on Plastic Hearts, her 70s and 80s rock nodding record? 
Yeah. So basically what I was trying to get at with with that line was basically this idea that although I think some of it sounds really good, like I think all the Ronson songs sound amazing. I think basically right. it feels a lot much like actually that early Meet Miley Cyrus vibe. It feels kind of like a pop producer's version of what rock music is. Totally. I think the first half of the album especially is very pink or maybe like Panic at the Disco or something. clean shiny versions of rock songs mm-hmm. produced largely by the team that's behind a lot of post malone's music yeah lewis bell yeah and i just think it's a weird disconnect right because her voice is so untreated and it's so self-consciously ragged and then it's paired with this very clean quite basic rock production that producers i mentioned jonathan rado especially he worked with the killers on their album imploding the mirage it was still extremely killersy but it just had this much nicer a veneer to it that I think maybe someone like Miley could benefit from just like someone who is not spending their days producing Camila Cabello songs you know (laughs) (laughs) yes yeah I agree with you that these are flattened to 2022 versions of pop songs but I'm so happy on this record with her working with producers that are giving her solid material because as I mentioned earlier I feel like that's let her down so many times in her career is like her choice of collaborators and like kind of getting chintzy production from people and I feel like while this music is definitely a flattened 2022 through a post Malone Camilo Cabello version of new wave and glam and all of these rock styles of the 70s and 80s. I'm still happy to hear Miley like getting top shelf pop material on which she can let her voice rip than I am about Orin Yole on fucking Younger Now. You know what I mean? Or like totally. Wayne Coyne or whomever. You know, that was why these songs ultimately work for me. And what I perceived about your quote, maybe I was off base about it, is like, what if she actually just made the record that this record is sort of pretending to be on some level? What if she just made a record with some sort of producer from this era or somebody with like a little less of like a radio sheen to it and really just rocked out in that way? Yeah, exactly. And the other thing is the production of all of these songs lets the actual songs down. Because I think a lot of the writing on this album is really good, like really hooky, but also really personal. And I think interacts with her tabloid persona in a really smart, interesting way. I think like Midnight Sky, especially. Bad Karma, I love that song. I think a lot of the songs are really smartly written and I just think the production is where it's let down. I agree that some of the songwriting is her best. She has an assist from like one of the greatest current working songwriters on a lot of these songs, Ali Tamposi. As I mentioned with Younger Now, Miley needs other songwriters, I think, to deliver her best material. But I agree. This is some of her most personal lyrics and some of her best written songs. One of my personal favorites is Golden G-String. Just a very delicate and very deeply felt reflection on her past image, I almost felt like on some 
level. As I touch on in the review, I think it's a bit too easy, but I think it's a great song. Like, I think it's really one of her best ballads for sure, and I think it's really smart. I wonder if you feel like continuing to drive in this direction, maybe in ways that you were sort of pointing out with like other producers that would give her a little bit more rustic, I don't know what the word would be, production, rock production. Like, do you think she's going to just adopt an entirely new guys again? Or do you think Plastic Hearts was the beginning of Miley actually sort of settling on a home base for her aesthetic? I think she'll probably stick with this at least one more album just because it is so successful for her. It's not like this album set the charts on fire or anything, but I think it no, did no, no, no. a lot for her in a certain way. Meaning in terms of just reestablishing her as like a credible artist. Yes, ex yeah, exactly. Yeah. One thing I kept coming back to over this discussion is this awkward element to a lot of Miley's career choices that have like defined her latter career. I think Can't Be Tamed is a profoundly awkward record. I think Bangers is on some level a profoundly awkward record. I think Dead Pets is an extremely awkward record. This record doesn't feel awkward. She feels at home in this music. And I think that that's potentially a light in the dark of like where this all might be going for her. I agree. So wrapping up our deep dive into Miley, we've gone in a lot of different directions here. I feel like we've done justice covering different elements of what have made all of her strange choices make some form of sense, I guess. What do you think Miley's legacy is as a pop star? Like, what do you think her influence has been? Do we see anything in terms of either her aesthetic choices or the way that she's operated her pop career? Are there other artists that have come after her that you see as kind of like standing in the legacy or lineage of Miley Cyrus? This is going to sound like a neg, and it's not. <laughs> but I think Miley's greatest legacy is teaching future pop stars what not to do aesthetically <laughs> and in the press, just in terms of what not to say, how not to act. Every pop star that's come since has learned a little bit of how to seem humble in the limelight. It's not a neg because like I love all her music, but that's her impact. Her impact is social more than I think musical. And... Do you see Miley as having a continued career as a pop star, as some sort of meaningful musical artist moving forward? Like, how do you see her career now that it's moving into its, like, middle of its second decade? How do you see the future for Miley Cyrus as a pop star? I think Plastic Hearts will have a really long tail. At the point at which she releases the first single from the next record, I think it has the potential to be huge. My gut tells me that she's in her lane now i don't think she'll ever be as big as she was bangers era i don't think it's possible like the, the, we're such a fickle ageist pop consuming public that i just can't imagine that she's ever gonna have that level of hit but i do think miley is the type of artist like in the vein of a share i think miley cyrus will always be famous not yes. to recite the meme but i think miley cyrus was born to be on stage i could see her like hosting a talk show i could see her returning to acting i could see her having a vegas residency i could see her headlining the super bowl i could see her doing all of the these things like she's such a natural performer that I think no matter whether Miley ever has a hit song again I have a strong feeling that Miley Cyrus will be in our pop cultural sphere for many decades to come yeah agree agree So let's talk about the pop pantheon. 
you have mentioned that you have your own thoughts on where Miley should fit and also that you have beef with me in general about the Pop Pantheon tiers, perhaps. Maybe you'd like to share a little bit about that. Yeah, well, so, like, I think Kanye is obviously tier one. Okay, we're not talking about Kanye right now. This is Pop Pantheon Miley. I know, but just in the examples you gave, and then I'm kind of like, Cher, Billy Joel, I don't know whether they're tier ones. Oh, my God. You don't think Cher is a tier one pop star? I think she's good. I don't think she, like, changed culture. I mean, actually, now that I say it. What do you mean? Shad, no, come on, I'm sorry. Girl. Now that I say it. Now girl. that I say it. I forgot. Girl, I forgot. you are going to fucking gay jail for that shit. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I Actually, now that I say it, I'm like, I think that's not true. Please. She, like, created so many of the tropes of pop stardom that a lot of these people built on. Yeah, I know. As soon as I said it out loud. But I think Kanye and Gaga almost definitely belong in tier one. That was kind of my main beef. I was like, Kanye undeniably like changed. Kanye, we haven't done an episode on yet, so I will not be commenting on that for the future health of this podcast. (laughs) Lady Gaga, I believe Lindsay Zoleds and I had a fierce debate about that. I can't remember. It was a very early episode, but for some reason we felt like she was still one heel turn away from tier one, but close. Mm. That was how we, I think that's how we left that one. All right. So what about Miley Cyrus, the person we've spent the last two hours talking about? I think in terms of celebrity, tier two, but I think in terms of ability to make hits, tier 4B. Yeah. See, I think on pure metrics alone, she's kind of a tier four, but... As I always say to my guests, we have full carte blanche to throw these rules out the window and just use our brains to see this shit for what it is, because sometimes the rules just don't necessarily help us. So I think that is a correct assessment, which leads me to believe that we should put her in tier three. Yeah, I think so. I think that makes the most sense. I think her actual metrics make her seem kind of like a giant flop for like most of her career, but yet there's just something about her continued A-listiness that like makes it inappropriate for her to actually be in tier four. Yeah, and she's created a lot of iconic pop cultural images. Like Miley, what's good alone? Like, Oh my she, God. Yeah. And everything she did in the bangers era. Yeah. Exactly. And Hannah Montana. Yeah. I mean, she definitely had a pretty successful reinvention. I mean, it was it was weird, but she did it. And I was thinking about this, like when it shakes out, what do you think Miley's like true great songs that were also hit records are? Like how many do we have when we look back at it? I think The Climb. Yes. Party in the USA. Yes. We Can't Stop. Yes. Wrecking Ball. Yes. <laughs> Skipping Dead Pets. Malibu, I would throw in the mix perhaps. Like almost there, <laughs> almost there. <laughs> I'm trying to think like Slide Away wasn't a hit, but it's like definitely a legacy song. I feel like not big enough. Like it's like a legacy song, but okay. Nothing breaks like a heart. Again, not enough commercial success. That's the thing. Like these are all great (sighs) songs, but not enough commercial success. Damn. Right. So that's where we kind of like start to hit the kids. Would you put like seven things in there? Nah, I don't think good enough. See you again. Nah, nah. Adore you. Yeah. But again, it wasn't like a hit. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah, you're right. So what about Midnight Sky? Um, Kind of again, like a minor. Again, I think it has to reach the top 10 to like be in contention. Right. Right, so we're really dealing with like six songs ultimately. At Pretty the end of the day much. That like fit that. Well, yeah, like four, 
undeniable, <laughs> and then maybe like two or three yeah, bubbling, couple, bubbling up. Couple on the bubble. Yeah, that's so funny to think about because she's released so much music. Like when I started to go through these Hannah Montana albums, I was like, man, before she even got to Can't Be Tamed, whatever, she had already made like three hundred songs. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> All right, I'm thinking tier three. You feel good about that? Yeah, I feel good about it. All right, so final question for you, Shad. What is an underrated Miley Cyrus song? And I know you're about to pick a fucking dead pet song, which is just beyond my comprehension. Let's send the podcast out on. What is it? My favorite Miley Cyrus song ever is called Lighter. It's from the last quarter of Dead Pets. And I think it's her single greatest song. Produced by Mike Will. It's like really tasteful, really beautiful, perfect, perfect song. Welp. I'm going to have to take your word for it because I've never gotten to the last quarter of my life. You're going to like it. It's re- it's really, really good. <laughs> I can't wait. All right. Well, Shah D'Souza, thank you so, so, so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. All right, so that's Pop Pantheon, Miley Cyrus, a tier three superstar. The judgment is rendered. I want to say the heartiest thank you to Shad D'Souza for all of his knowledge and good cheer. I want to say thank you as always to the fabulous Russ Martin for everything he does to make this show happen. Please like and subscribe and rate and review Pop Pantheon wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V. Hop in the Discord channel and talk to other like-minded pop music fanatics check out the spotify playlist for this and every episode send your pop and pop pantheon related questions to pop pantheon pod at gmail.com for our listener mailbag episode and until i see you guys next week have a wonderful life okay bye bye yeah.